Annie Dillard, author, wrote a uh, book called um, the uh, Teaching a Stone to Talk, and, and she was taking issue with the way we in North America look at God and um, look at worship. Here's what she writes. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we, th- we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake one day and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. You know, I was asked, um, why are we preaching out of Isaiah? It's a very confusing, difficult book to understand. And I think if I had to sum it up in a sentence, it was simply this, that I don't think I fear God like I ought to. I think that's how I would summarize it. I don't fear God like I ought to. I think in the book of Isaiah, we're going to see two things. Fundamentally, we're going to see a severe judgment. Um, we're going to see God, you know, we kind of, um, so Freud says that God is an invention of our projections. I do think we create God in our own image. We look at him a- as kind of a kind sort of deity. And I think when we go through this book of Isaiah, we're going to find almost embarrassed at how God behaves towards sin and sinners. Almost like we have to excuse him in this cultured society in which we live. On the other hand, there's a severe judgment that we're going to see in God that that, that is breathtakingly frightening. And not frightening enough for me. And and yet there's a severe mercy of God. I mean, to do something that none of us would have even considered doing. I mean, to give of himself for us. It's a severe judgment and a severe mercy that I think we're going to see throughout this book. So I would just encourage you as we go through it and you're reading ahead that you would be mindful of those two things. They're going to be the two sides of the coin for us. Severe judgment and yet severe comfort and mercy. We're going to look in Isaiah 1 today and it's a courtroom scene. It's going to be God bringing a charge against the people, and and he's going to be bringing judgment to them. And then we're going to see uh, the people make a defense against God. Hold it now. This is who we are. And And then God's going to come around with a severe mercy. So turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 1. We'll be reading verse 2 through 20. And if you have your Bibles, open it. It's a a longer passage, and so it sometimes helps to follow along with it. Isaiah 1, 2, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel doesn't know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. 
Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate, overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should not. We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling in my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity with solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow, though they are like cr- red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Now notice in verse 2, I mean, you, you, you feel this scripture, I pray, I trust He begins in verse 2 with calling the heavens and the earth to bear witness because God has spoken. Don't miss that God speaks. Many people think God is silent. God is not silent. God speaks, and he speaks not just worlds into existence. He speaks to his people. And in this speech, he's bringing judgment upon a people. He's bringing an indictment upon a people. The children of, of Judah and Jerusalem as rebellious. Now, why is he calling the heavens and earth? Well, remember this in history. God called this people. He established a covenant with them. And he promised to love and care and protect them. And they promised to love and obey and be loyal to him. We see this covenant made in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses writes, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land. God made a covenant with them, and they agreed to walk together as father and as children. But they violated the covenant. They broke the covenant. That's what he's convicting them of. He's saying this. He's saying, 
children have I reared? This isn't just a normal court case. This is a father bringing a child to court for rebellion. And and this is not a normal child, Uh, not through the natural way. This is a child that was formed by God's divine choice. God, out of all the peoples, elected this people to be his children, and he promised to care and love them. This is an anguished father having to bring a rebellious child to court. I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? I mean, God was so gracious to elect them and to save them, to protect them, to lead them, and they rebel against him. It it goes against reason. And I think that's his point with the ox and the donkey. The ox knows its master. I mean, the donkey knows where the crib is. It knows where food comes from. I, I know it's been bantied about that I'm not a dog lover. I just want to clear the air right now. I don't dislike dogs. I like dogs. And I have a dog. And the dog at 4 o'clock will come to me and look for dinner. Every day it knows where to come. He knows she, sorry. We're not as close as I'd like to be. I have a little gender confusion. It's the culture. The dog knows where to go for food. The dog will sit and stare at us until you feed the dog. It's no question the dog is grateful for the food that we... God is saying, if the animal kingdom knows who cares and loves and who protects and who provides, then ought the children not love the father? I, I, I mean, the, the ingratitude, he says, in verse 3, says, Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. I, I, I mean... There is an ingratitude among the people of Israel that isn't even known among the beasts. And so God brings, this anguished father brings a charge against his children for violating the covenant. They've been rebellious. And then you see in verse 4, he piles seven words upon one another, showing the nature of their idolatry, their ingratitude, their forsakenness. I want to make sure you're listening because I think it challenges our view, our modern view of sin. We look at sin as kind of the breaking of a rule or or the breaking of some code of of morality that I'm trying to follow. They may be sins, but, but what I'd like to say to you is this. I think it is the fly on the backside of the elephant. I don't think it's the fundamental issue. Sin isn't about rule-keeping. Sin is about two things here in this text. It's ingratitude and idolatry. It's ingratitude. What I mean by that is I think fundamental to all of our sins, what kind of gives birth to our sins, is this idea that we're not very thankful to God, that we don't look at the things that God has given to us. Even the non-Christian here, even the non-Christian should be able to at least recognize they didn't plant themselves here. They didn't appoint the place that they would be born. They didn't appoint the parents that they would have. They have been given much. Even the non-Christian would have to say, yeah, I mean, a lot's been done for me, and I don't even know how it was done. Bringing up a measure of gratitude. The Christian even more so. The Christian doesn't just have all of that, but the Christian also has a savior, a, a king, one who is redeemed and delivered. So we are to be the most grateful people. But you see among the people of God this, this kind of this ingratitude, this thanklessness. I mean, we know as parents 
how rankled we can be when we see a child act like a spoiled brat. You know, it just is distasteful. And yet, I often think among the people of God, are we not indicted by this? Is this not a legitimate charge? I mean, how expressive are you to God and to one another of your gratitude? Of all the things that you have, isn't it funny sometimes how we can take things and we move into an entitlement posture that I deserve this. And I look at the gifts that God has given to me and they become my tools to use for my purposes rather than a platform in which to give thanks to God. There's an ingratitude among the people of God. But not just ingratitude, there's an idolatry. There's an idolatry. And when I speak about idolatry, and I didn't know, I think uh, Matt spoke about it actually in the uh, Bible study today. There's an idolatry that, of course, isn't just worshiping these statues of stone and metal. I- idolatry is, is fundamentally about asserting my rights over God's. That, that I want what I want when I want it. That, that idolatry can take many forms. It can be sex, power, my body. It can be money. It can be fame. It can be all kinds of things. It can be good things. It can be religion. It can be family. It can be marriage. But what it is fundamentally is simply this, that that is going to be my ultimate source of good and joy and hope, and not God. That God, again, idolatry coexists with belief. We believe in God, but God becomes the one through whom I'm going to find my pleasures satisfied or my fears diminished. We, we use God, if you will, in idolatry. So, so are, are we indicted by this? I, I would ask you to evaluate your souls right now. Consider yourself. I mean, are you a grateful person? Do you express that? Is that seen? Or are you idolatrous? Do you pursue many things outside of God? Do you tend to use God? Do you tend to ignore God? Or only run to him when you're in trouble? Just ask yourself that. We are a very narcissistic culture. We're very much, we, we fight the battle of self-love. Narcissism is just that, comes from Greek mythology. Narcissus was a, a handsome, proud young Greek who, who, who was tempted by an enemy, nemesis, to look in a pool, and he saw this reflection, and he fell so deeply in love with himself that he couldn't part from not looking at himself, thus dying. How narcissistic are we? I mean, in opposition. So this is the charge God brings. God brings a charge to the people of God. And he says this, here's the charge. In gratitude and idolatry, you have forsaken me. But then here's what God does. He brings evidence to bear in this case. And you see this, actually in 5 to 9. He begins with this question, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it. God is showing us the foolishness of our sin. He's saying sin is judged. God will judge sin. And, and God is judging sin as seen by this metaphor of the body. He said from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. In other words, you are through and through sick and filled with sin. You know, if you can imagine that, you know, like in some gladiator games, the body is broken and beaten and bloodied. It's just lying there. Just life is seeping out of it. He's saying that is your spiritual condition. And you have brought that on. My judgment has brought that on because of your sin. It's a terrible picture. It's a frightening picture. 
But he moves from this kind of metaphor of the body to the historical significance of what he says next. He says this. He says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate. It's overthrown. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard. He's speaking to what was happening to Israel. In other words, God had warned them, by the way. God did. Back in Deuteronomy 28, he warned the people. He said, if you break covenant, if you walk in knowing sin, judgment will come upon you. This is the holiness of God now. This is the severe judgment I was talking about. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 28. He says, the Lord your God will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted will come down throughout your land. Now, when Isaiah was prophesying, this was happening. So Assyria, as I mentioned last week, had risen up in the east. They're a great, fast power. They began moving west, consuming nations before them. They consumed the two the northern tribe of Israel. They consumed Syria. They had begun to consume Judah. All the towns were taken down. In fact, the last town was Jerusalem, and the Assyrian army had surrounded it. Even, even in the annals of Sennacherib, kind of like a war log, he says Hezekiah was surrounded and caged like a bird. 185,000 soldiers around. That was all that was left. God is saying, I'm charging you with forsaking me. I'm charging you with sin. Here's the evidence. Look, your land's desolate. It's all gone. Once the glory of Israel is now gone. That, that expression, a daughter of Zion, now like a booth. You can imagine the glory of all of Israel. Now it's like a shack in a field. That's how far you've fallen. How foolish your sin is. Look at the judgment falling upon you. Why do you cling to that which kills you? In fact, they would have clung to it all the way to the end. This is the mercy of God. Look in verse 9. He says, if the Lord had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. To call the Israelites like Sodom and Gomorrah, you could not bring a harsher criticism to them. And God, for, God spared a few. And we're going to see that in Isaiah 36, where God, the angel of the Lord, crushed the Assyrian army. They would be deported, but God spared a few. The question is, in five, that you still have to answer is this. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? In other words, ask yourself the question. You know as a parent, if your child is just in a self-destructive path, you know you want to subvert him. You want to redirect them. I mean, the, the, the absurdity of continuing in sin defies logic. Sin, folks, is irrational. It makes no sense. It brings wrath. It brings condemnation. It brings bondage. It brings enslavement. How have you been served by sin? The pursuits of sin that we take up, how have they served you? Have you been benefited? Are you satisfied? I'm not saying in the moment. Oh, in the moment, sin's very pleasurable. But then the backwash of it. How do you feel? I mean, is it good? I mean, God's asking the question. He's saying, how's it served you? Have you been pleased with it? It's absurd. I, I had a friend who had a wonderful wife, good business, 
big house, a lot of money, and um, his pleasure, he sought pleasure, and, and the means of his pleasure was more drugs and alcohol. That was for him. It can be power. It can be work. It can be all kinds of different things, but for him, it was drugs and alcohol, and um, he began to pursue it at a decent pace, had always, but amped it up, and uh, we just watched over time. Uh, the business was lost. House was lost. Um, Wife was lost. Children eventually turned against. And uh, then I, I heard a report that he had been seen. Uh, didn't even have a shirt at this point. Just had a pair of pants and found sanctuary in crack houses. That's how far he had fallen. Now, I know that may seem like an extreme uh, example to you. But I'm trying to show that nature of the absurdity of sin. Why would you pursue it? I remember speaking with him. And saying, you know, at the same time, uh, my brother's dying of cancer. And I said, the irony is palpable. You are trying to kill yourself. He's trying to live. And he's going to die. And you'll continue to live in this downward self-destructive cycle. That's what God's saying. It makes no sense. I'm a father to you. I've provided for you. And you continue in this path that is contrary to me. It seems so foolish. So God brings a case. He charges them. He shows the evidence. Look at your sin. Look at the desolation. It's all there for you. But then look what he does. He, he rebukes their rebuttal or their defense. Implicitly, the, the people of God are saying, hold it now, we're your people. Look at us. We're worshiping. You know, look at the lambs we sacrifice, countless lambs, it says. And it says, well-fed beasts. To sacrifice the well-fed beasts, that was the expensive one. Why? Because you had to take more time to fatten it up and then you bring it to sacrifice. So it costs more money. It, it would be more desirous to have on your plate rather than give it to God. So look at us, God. Look at how we're serving you. And God confronts them. Look what he says in 10 to 15. He says, hear the word. Now he calls them sodomites. He calls them people of Gomorrah. And he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifice? He said, I've had enough of burnt offerings. I, I don't delight in the blood of bulls. Remember this now, Passover. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. And, and he said one time at one Passover that he celebrated, there were a quarter million lambs slaughtered for Passover. That would create a river of blood. Now, if the blood is to display the forgiveness of God from Luke 17, uh, Leviticus 17, 11, you would think, wow, God, you've got to be honored. Look, there's rivers of blood here that we're sacrificing to you. He says, I don't, I don't like the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. He says, when you appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? It's not the feet of worshipers. It's just, it's just people of the marketplace and the bazaar. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I become weary of bearing them. Isn't that ironic? The omnipotent, the all-powerful, almighty God is wearied by our hypocrisy. He can be wearied, evidently, by our hypocrisy and our formal worship. He says, I'll hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I'll not listen. Your hands are full of blood. We don't know if it's the blood of sacrifices that they're offering or blood of murder. But here's the point. God finds their worship objectionable. They're the people of God. 
they're like us. They're worshiping God, and he finds it objectionable. Why? Well, A, it was devoid of love. It was done out of duty and obligation. There was no love. But it was also, it was devoid of a people seeking to live in purity. I mean, he says that right in, in verse 13, second half of the verse. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. This doesn't mean you have to be perfect to come to worship. But be repentant. Be aware of our need for him. It was also devoid of that fruit of the people of God. Look what he says in 16 and 17. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. So they were obviously unclean. He says, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. In other words, for the follower of God, there is a concern for social action. There is a concern for cultural engagement. It's right there. And if we just kind of as, I, I keep going back to Nick's family, you know, if we have big heads full of theology and, and little feet taking us nowhere, what does that say about our worship? So God is condemning this formal worship. You know what I'm talking about. That worship where we begin to, uh, we begin to think, yeah, yeah, I'll go to church. Yeah, that's fine. You know, we're weary with God. We're weary with having to worship him. That's what God challenges the people of God in Malachi. In Malachi 1, 10, he says, Oh, that there was one among you who had shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Here's what he says. Because you say, what a weariness this is. You know that sense we have? Like we're doing God a favor by going to church? Like we kind of have this sense of, Okay, okay, God, I'm going to church. I mean, I'm doing the ministry. I hope you're happy. That is an attitude out of the pit of hell. I mean, to think that, that somehow we're wearied in our worship. I mean, what does it say? I mean, it's profound. I mean, wh- how do you worship? I mean, when you evaluate your heart before God, are, are, you, are you checking off a list? Are you doing a duty? Are you just satisfying the deity so he doesn't hurt you? That's what the pagans did. They would sacrifice things just to appease. They would appease the monster. Just get him off my back. So that's what he's criticizing here. God is saying to them, you say you bring worship, but let me tell you about your worship. Now, I grant you, formal, you know, kind of plastic worship is easy. It is. It works. It's, it's very effective. It's easier for me to count the number of times I go to church and feel good about myself rather than measure the love that I have for my neighbor. It's easier for me to to go to church or to read my Bible than to reconcile an issue that I'm wrong with over Carol because it requires too much humility. It's easier for me to give some money at church than to involve myself in any person's life that's struggling with finances or hardships. It's easier, and I feel good about myself, and I feel like I've done my thing. I just want to warn us, our ability to deceive ourselves is incredible. You know, when you read the Gospels, any of you, you read the Gospel and you see the Pharisees, are you not overwhelmed by their blindness? How'd they miss Jesus? I mean, come on, how did they miss him? And they're looking at us. They're saying, how can you live such insolent lives? I mean, you know how easy it is to point out the sins of other people? Very difficult to point out our own sins. 
But that's, that's God's charge. So, so they make a defense, look at what we've done for you, and then boom, God makes a rebuttal to it. So here we are in verse 15. I don't know about you, feeling rather poor right now and thinking, I'm massively in a corner. I, he's brought a charge. He's laid the evidence out. I've made my defense, and he's smashed it to smithereens. What hope do I have? i got nothing. You've got nothing. We're just guilty. This is the severe mercy of God. Look in 16 and 17 again. I want you to be wrapped up with the comfort of God. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What's he saying here? He's saying repent. He's saying return to me, which is the word repent, shuv, to turn back to God. And when I speak about repentance, though, I don't mean you feel guilty over what I'm saying or there's a little bit of remorsefulness in your heart. I'm not talking about that. Genuine repentance begins in the heart, but it evidences itself not just in a change of the way we live, the seeking to move away from the sin of our lives, but as I pointed out before, it moves to the culture. It, it has to move outside of our lives. I mean, you see it right there with me. I'm not importing it or isogening it into the text. It's bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. <clears throat> Take up the case of the broken. A genuine repentance will always bear this fruit. But when I read this, and when I was preparing this sermon, I thought, but I can't do this. How can I wash myself clean? How can I, with dirty hands, clean myself? How can I, a corrupt person, uncorrupt myself? How can I remove from the eyes of an omniscient God my evil deeds? I can't do it. I'm overwhelmed with it. The call for repentance in 16 and 17 is tethered to the promise of a pardon in 18. Look in 18. These are beautiful words. God the Father, who is rightfully positioned to bring great judgment upon us, his rebellious children, he says, come and reason with me. Come and speak with me. Come, see my glory. See your wretchedness in light of my glory. Be overwhelmed by my goodness and my mercy and my grace. Come and reason with me. He says, though, here's the promise, your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them white. Your sins are red like crimson, I'll make them like wool. This is the gospel. This is why Isaiah is called the fifth evangelist. Because the gospel is so clear here. This promise of redemption, this promise of forgiveness, coming to God by faith brings about a forgiveness and a redemption, a restoration, a reconciliation with God. Now, God is not departing from his glorious, just position. He'll punish sin. He'll deal decisively with sin. But he won't deal with us over it. He's going to deal with the servant who will take upon himself the sin. See, Isaiah, remember now, Isaiah preached over 60 years. And so he would go into the town and he would give this oracle. He would give this word of God. Go back, write it, post it on the door so that it could be read by people. And then over the years, collect these things and put them together in this book. And, and so all these messages are to be seen together. So when we see this promise of 
are scarlet sins being made white like snow. It's looking forward to the rest. We're going to find out in just a few weeks about a king who's going to come. In fact, a child is going to be born. He's a unique child, God with us. And this child is going to have a government that rests upon his shoulders in Isaiah 9. And this, this child is going to be filled with the Spirit of God and might and power in Isaiah 11. And then this, this child, this king, is going to also be the servant in Isaiah 53 where it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's how we're going to be made white. This is the glory of Christianity. No other religion has one substitute who is perfectly God and yet like us in every way bear all of our sins and all of our shame and all of our guilt. This is the gospel. Come and reason with me. Though your sins be like scarlet, they'll be made white like snow. You'll be forgiven. What severe mercy that he bears, to grant us innocence. It's profound. But notice the last two verses in 18 and 19. He says, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat from the land. If you are rebellious and refuse, you'll be eaten by the sword. Interesting turn of phrases, eat or be eaten. It kind of puts it in very stark black and white terms. Eat or be eaten. Uh, To eat of the land doesn't mean you get your next meal free. It's a picture. The land was always picturing being in the presence of God. It's being with God in Christ. To eat of the land means you're enjoying all that God has promised for us. Pleasures beyond any sort of physical, sexual, financial pleasure that you think you can have here. It, it, It doesn't even pale in comparison. That's what you eat. But if you refuse and rebel, then you'll be eaten by the sword. You'll continue in this destructive pattern of life that will lead you to hell. That's the starkness of it. The severe judgment, the severe mercy. It's right there. So what do we do with this? I mean, how, how, do, how do I wrap this up? Well, I, I would say to the, um, I would first, I trust you've heard the severity of judgment but I I trust you've heard the severity of his mercy to us in Christ. For the non-Christian here, if your life is going along swimmingly and you're comfortable and everything's lovely, then this seems like a bunch of religious stuff that you don't need. I I get that. I totally understand that. Uh, If you're non-Christian here today and your life isn't going so well and you begin to this begins to make sense to you, and you, you do begin to see all the attempts you've made have failed, these self-salvation projects of trying to bring meaning and purpose to life and trying to extricate yourself from all these different problems, and you just are finding yourself getting deeper in the weeds, this will begin to make sense to you. You begin to see your wretchedness, and you begin to see who you really are deep, 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 deep down inside. Then this begins to provide hope for you yeah, it's kind of like, if you will, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Right? The parable of the prodigal son, you know the story. There's a father, he's wealthy, he has two sons, younger, older. The younger one wants the money for wine, women, and song. And so he petitions his dad, basically saying, I'd rather have you dead, give me the cash now. Dad gives him the cash. He goes out, spends it. Now, life's going great for him. He's not even thinking about God. The money's there, the women are there, the food and the booze is there. Great, super, everything's going super. He's like a beast, but he's being satisfied at least. All of a sudden, the women start to leave because the money's gone and the food starts to dry up. So he finds himself working with pigs. Now, for a Jew to work with pigs is an abomination, right? 
So he's working with pigs, and he begins to realize, wow, this isn't working. And here's what the scripture says. Jesus said, he came to his senses. He woke up and realized, wow, there's something more going on here. I, I really don't have life by the tail. I really do need some divine help. I'm really in trouble. He came to his senses and returned to the Father. For the non-Christian here, if you're coming to your senses and you realize this, then come to Christ. That's what the scripture calls you. Come to Christ. Listen to what he says in chapter 55. He says, seek the Lord. And Nick read these at the beginning of the service. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's the promise. So for the non-Christian here, appeal to Christ for forgiveness. Transfer all your hope for life on him and not on what you've done. If you understand your wickedness, remember C.S. Lewis said these great words. He said this. I, I find this amazingly freeing. He says, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. Now the proud, avaricious, and the self-righteous, they are in that danger. But the broken one will turn to the one who can heal. So that's the word for the non-Christian. I, I have a word too for the Christian. Well, I've got two words left. The other word is for the religious here. In every church you have religious people. These were religious people. Um, in the parable of the prodigal son, you have the older brother. Remember, the older brother has been faithful all the time. And he's upset that the son took the money, and he's upset that the son came back. And he's not even going to go into the party and celebrate the feast over the return of the son. And so the older brother's outside, and he's pretty ticked off. The dad comes out and says, why aren't you coming in and enjoying the celebration? Your, your, your brother that was dead has returned, and now he's alive. Let's rejoice together. He says, when did you ever throw me a party? I've served you all these years. I've done all this work. I've always been there for you, and you've never done nothing for me. You can just hear the language of the formalist. You can just hear him say, hey, I'm going to church, what do you want? I, I gave it to church, what, what do you need? I've done everything you've wanted me to do, God. You hear it in the older brother. And I would say to those of you, if you have been resting in the things that you've done, if you've looked at your, at your involvement in God or your involvement in the church or, or some propositional knowledge of the gospel, if that's what has brought you a sense of security before God, I would call you to repent of your religion. Repent of thinking religion saves. Christ alone saves, not your practice of religion. If you're resting on your practicing of the religion, you're not resting on the gospel, and you're not saved. So I would call you to repent. And in every church, particularly in a southern culture, there's always people who are deceived about their position before God. And I'm well convinced that some are in here repenting of your religion. You're religious, but Christ isn't where you're building your house, but what you've done and who you've been. And, and then last, I would say to the Christian here, to the Christian here, I would still come to Christ and reason with God. Some of us are battling besetting sins. We, we cannot seem to overcome the anger we have or the lust we have or the, or the, the greed that we fight with. Come to Christ. He'll fill you with the Spirit. Reason with God. Look at the sovereignty of God, the glory of God. Consider his magnificence and begin to look at your sins in light of him. God, by his Spirit, is going to transform you from glory to glory. That's the gospel for the believer. The gospel isn't just for the unbeliever, but for the believer. Because the gospel is what transforms us from glory to glory. And we begin to mature and develop through the gospel. We need the gospel. In fact, there's an article out on the table, Gospel Sanctification by Jerry Bridges. 
It's a great article. It helps us would-be moralists move back to living in light of the gospel. And it'll be on the table out there. Please grab, grab one. I, I would say to the Christian, not just come to Christ, but secondly and last, I would say, um, I would say get excited about the day. I, I want you to see that this whole message isn't just about saving people from their sins so that we can be assured of going to heaven. This is the beginning of a great work in Isaiah that's going to end in a new heavens and new earth. We are very myopic as a Christian church. We just want to get saved. But the salvation is in the context of God doing a huge redemptive work in bringing about a new heavens and a new earth where God is going to change everything so that we can enjoy his glory forever. So this is part of, of a greater landscape of what God's doing in the life that we will see and become and be a part of. So, so think more than today. Think less narrowly. Think more broadly at what God's doing. And I'll trust God to make sense of this if it doesn't. So let me pray for us now, and then we'll, we'll come to the table that this passage speaks of. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Father, you have demonstrated a, a severe judgment to us. And you have revealed to us a severe mercy, a mercy that was severe on the Son. But we have benefited greatly. Father, would you be glorified to press rightly conviction upon the hearts of the people. Lord, may my words not obfuscate or confuse or overweight certain things, but may your spirit bring to our minds great clarity and response, repentance and faith. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.